Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first Get the Let Out podcast. That's Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We're going to be talking about uh, something very, very different. Some of you may be familiar with Chuck's other podcast, the Backport Stories podcast, and uh, we'd love you to visit that site anytime and, and enjoy that. But uh, this is going to be of a slightly more serious tenor, I believe, this conversation, this discussion. It deals with some very, very weighty issues around our environment and the misuse and abuse thereof and uh, the effect that has on the lives of human beings and communities and uh, what we can and must do about it. So without any further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Chuck Stead to tell us all about Get the Let Out, a book that he wrote after his very active participation in resolving the situation to the best possible outcome. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. These readings are from this book, as Joe mentioned, called Get the Lead Out. The subtitle of the book is The Endangered Turtle Clan of the Ramapo Lunape, Ford Wastes, Superfund, Environmental Injustice, and Recovery. And I want to focus on that last word, recovery. This whole podcast is, some of it's difficult to hear and some of it's, uh, well, it's inspiring. And, uh, but all of it is about recovery. And really, that's what we're all trying to do. We, we live in a highly impacted world and we're trying to recover. So this first reading is from Chapter 1, Trapper's Story, Part 1. I learned a trap from my father, Walt. He went along with me and taught me some of what he knew. He introduced me to other trappers who shared their stories and encouraged me on. It was the early 1960s, and the west end of Rockland County, New York, was changing from a distinctly rural community to a commuter's suburban landscape. Trapping and hunting were dying out, and a boy interested in such was a rarity. Perhaps that was the reason Walt and his cronies were so generous with their time, or perhaps it was a narrative that expected to be passed along either way. But I was the fortunate recipient. Some of Walt's trapping buddies were clearly native, and they were cautious about sharing too much of that part of them with a white boy. Still, being Walt's son was a calling card, which allowed me access to ways of being that many of my generation knew nothing of. Within my own family, there was intense racism, with uncles condemning blacks at large and the Ramapo Indian community as wannabe Indians. Hmm. I found that among the society of trappers with which Walt was familiar, ethnicity was of little concern. And this was fortunate for me, as the best trappers were the Indians, then the blacks, and the white folks trailing behind. Walt started me trapping for muskrats along a little creek called the Gully. This ran down from the old village reservoir along 6th Street and eventually leveled off and followed 6th toward the southern end of the village, where it was culvert run, by a section of the New York State Thruway that connected to the Thruway further on down to Jersey. We worked the lower section of the creek as there were no houses down there. This was the last leg of the creek where we went, the channelized portion by the Thruway construction. It ran straight through a deep gully and emptied into the Ramapo River. Walt chose this stretch as being out of sight of the six street houses because he figured we would arise little interest from kids who stole traps. I never believed there were such kids, but it was an old memory of his, and he held on to it. 
To access our muskrat trapping, we waded through the wide culvert to this great overarching corrugated steel frame. Drawing up on the other side was like entering a forgotten land, like a passage to another time. We chatted as we walked over to 6th Street, but once we got down into the cold water culvert, we fell silent and moved along studying the shoreline for rat sign. We used little number one Victor jump traps that were small leg hold spring devices. We set them in a fashion that the drag weighted the chain down into deeper water, usually drowning the muskrat shortly after being caught. On occasion, the little furry critter would climb up on a rock or hold onto a log, and we'd have to shove him under and drown him. This was the first fur bearer that I killed, sometimes holding it down underwater with my boot, feeling the squirm of life slip out of it. We talked about what that feeling was like, how it stuck to you in the night when you couldn't sleep. But it was all part of getting on, as Walt would say, and I accepted the regret as a reminder that life is precious and worth fighting for, even if you're a muskrat. Mostly my education in trapping and woodlore was experiential, but there were some books. I read A.R. Harding's series on small game trapping. We subscribed to Harding's magazine, Fur Fish Game, and of course I read the same Ernest Thompson Seton books that Walt had read years before and my grandfather before that. These were all things that were written early in the 1900s which only reinforced my sense of transcending time and place. I came upon Horace Kephart's book of Camping and Woodcraft. It was published in 1906, just like Seton's work. I extrapolated his self-sufficient methods for my pioneering exploits in the Ramapo Hills. These authors spoke of a romantic time where when woodcraft, common sense, and open space were the ingredients of endless adventure. I pioneered a tenuous border along a fragment of yesteryear, shape-shifting into a suburban landscape. Our muskrat trap line first went through the culvert, then reaching the Ramapo River, turned north up under a huge throughway state overpass. The entire route was accompanied by the sound of fast-moving throughway traffic. Commuters had no idea that they drove over a father and son practicing 19th-century fur harvesting. Once, we found a $20 bill below the throughway overpass, which we put to a dozen new traps, an offering blown out of the window of a commuter. The currency transcended time and shape-shifted into another reality. For a couple of seasons, we followed this route and never turned south at the convergence of the gully and the Ramapo River. I had heard that down below the Ford Motor Company Railroad Spur, the river opened up to some pretty fertile wetlands, which made for good muskrat territory. But Walt would not trap there. He said that was Meadows country, a lowland portion of housing that was cut off from the rest of the village by the throughway. Meadows, he said, was a place where some of the Ramapo Indians lived, along with some other folks too poor to get out of such a place. Apparently it was a floodplain, which to some degree had been abated when the throughway and ford completely reshaped the terrain but still, in times of high water, especially winter thaw, the meadows could flood and take days to drain. While all this makes for good muskrat trapping, Walt had checked it out and found that the meadows kids were actively working the area, so he refused to even consider intruding. I pressed him further until one day he admitted that he was not at all sure about the health of the animals down in that lower bottom area, there down below the Ford Railroad siding. He'd been to some dump fires down there, 
and he said they smoldered a nasty-smelling black smoke, like when a house fire blisters up and cooks off the lead paint. Now we regularly ate fish caught from the Ramapo River, and it struck me that muskrats caught in Ramapo water were really much the same as fish caught down there. Walt pointed out that we ate fish from above the 4th Street Dam, which was too high for rock bass and perch to bother jumping. I pressed him on the dangerous dump fire issue in defense of our river, and he said that the fires were most likely just garbage from the Ford Company. And he said, you got to take the bad with the good. Eventually, I made my way upriver, beyond the 4th Street Bridge, beyond the railroad trestles, along the banks of the Ramapo Land Company sand quarry, to where the water of the Tornbrook poured into the Ramapo River. My dad had an old friendship with the patriarch of the land company, Mr. Henry Pearson, who gave his personal permission for me to trap the valley, as I saw fit. This is where my trapping story really began. I loved this valley. From the start, with its sudden creeks after a rainfall, its terraces of ancient granite, its diverse stands of white pine, old hemlock, quaking aspen, fire-red sumac, sweet maple, thick brows of mountain laurel, sweet fern, star and cushion moss, and its endless tracking potential. Oh, it was great. There were also three sand quarries belonging to the land company, the first of which stretched at the mouth of the valley along the east bank of the Ramapo River, and the second and a third sand quarries followed up slope through the valley along the route of the Tornbrook. These were not deep rock quarries, but rather open field quarries that involved the removal of foliage and topsoil, exposing the sand deposits left by ancient glaciers. It was a fine mineral sand, excellent for concrete mix. By the time I entered the valley, these little quarries, which I called lower pit, middle pit, and upper pit, they were not active much. Still, there were some old dump trucks, some rusting earth movers about, ready to be fired up when called upon. The first fall, I explored the eastern slope of the valley. I seldom heard any machinery in use. Over the seasons, my weekend trapping extended into weekdays, with making the rounds in the late afternoon when I got off the school bus, and again in the early morning before being carted back to school. It was really sort of a double life. I was attending a private Catholic school by day, and then stripped of my formal costume, I was a 19th century trapper the rest of the time. While my focus was on reading the forest, tracking wildlife, and watching for changes in the landscape, I also made note of any new activities in the sand quarries, there being a lock gate at the start of Torn Valley Road and another lock gate on the other side of the valley by Lake Road, it was apparent that any such activities were limited to those who had a key, in other words, those employed by the land company. During that first year, I took a good number of raccoons and opossum and skunks. The latter, of course, caused quite a stir at grade school. Eventually, the good sisters at the Sacred Heart School sent me home with a request that I should be kept out of school when I met with a skunk. It was during the first year in the valley that I discovered signs of paint dumping. Late on a Saturday, I had decided to walk up the valley road instead of down, taking a different route. Having just come around the bend by the gate, I found two pickup trucks parked alongside the road. There was a cleared area behind the trucks, and there were some saplings that had been pushed over, and the earth was torn up. The trucks were loaded with 55-gallon drums covered with a heavy painter's canvas. I put down my trapper's pack 
and I climbed into the first pickup. It was a Ford F-150, and the keys were in the ignition. Ha <laughs> ha! Thrilled, I was tempted to turn the key, and then realized this could mean the owner was somewhere at hand. So nervously, I slid out. But before leaving, I explored the source of a thick turpentine odor that I found at the back of the truck by the barrels. I climbed up onto the back and was about to look under the tarp, but the smell got to me, caused my eyes to water. So I jumped down. After making the full loop, I returned to this spot where both trucks were parked as if they were waiting for something. I made a note of this in my journal, but I didn't bother to sketch it. It was dark, and I didn't really feel confident drawing vehicles. This journal I kept, actually a series of notebooks and journals, was a practice I picked up from reading the Seaton books. He advocated journaling as a means of keeping track of your sense of place, making notes of any sort of short or long changes in the area. I carried a notebook of one sort or another most of the time, although I was not consistent as to how I logged. Sometimes it was a diary, sometimes it was a dry list of things, and sometimes I sketched things that I found along the trap line. Seton had kept a journal of his tracking, and I often did the same. But something Seton never did was draw industrial impact. He may have seen some in his Manitoba youth, but he did not see the quarrying activities of one sort or another that I had seen. I, on the other hand, managed to sketch some of those sand quarry activities in Ramapo. By the following year, I found more activity in the lower and middle pit. It was around 1965 that I walked into a wide open space of the lower pit and saw three men standing by a tarp-covered pickup truck near the old quarry, Quonset Hut. I recognized them as friends of my father. They were Pearson Mapes, Ray Conklin, and Steve Matson. Pearson Mapes was a family member of the long-standing Pearson family who first established the ironworks at Ramapo back in 1798. Pearson was something of a land manager for the company. Conklin and Matson were both contractors who at different times were hired out to do work in the quarries. Of the three of them, Mapes, a big round-bellied fellow, and the oldest of them, was talkative and outgoing and opinionated. Conklin and Matson, they were younger than Mapes. Conklin was more engaging than Matson. He was chattier than, than Mapes, but, but it was Mapes who called me over. Despite my father knowing these guys, I felt a tension in walking up to them. First, I showed them the game in my pack, a raccoon and possum. They admired it. Conklin observed that the opossum fur was worthless. Matson told them that while the fur was worthless, it was the fat that made an excellent boot oil for waterproofing. Steve Matson knew about trapping an animal or usually it's his word. It was usually the last to say, but still Conklin teased me about scraping down opossum fat instead of just buying a tin of mink oil as modern farmers did in those days. I repacked my game basket. I hefted it onto my shoulder. They said goodbye and I walked off, lost in thought. I went over everything they said and wondered why it had scared me so. There was... Something going on, a stinging in my sinuses. The, the tarp-covered truck had steel barrels in it, and they smelled like the ones I'd found the year before. This was not a hunting or a trapping or a fishing odor. It was something else. Maybe it had to do with quarry work, but it reminded me of the turpentine odor that I sometimes smelled in my, in my dad's paint shop. So being a Saturday morning, I walked to the paint shop at the end of Torn Valley Road, Uncle Mal was there. He was working on some shutters. 
He admired my game. He offered me a cup of coffee. Oh, no, no. I drank a flat Coca-Cola instead. And as he worked on the shutters, I stood around sniffing the air, trying to sort out what that, what that, that odor was, that almost sharp, sweet, industrial odor. And it really was not like the turpentine smell in the paint shop. There was something else up there in the valley. That night, after I skinned the game, stretched the hide, scraped down the fat from the opossum and capped it in a peanut butter jar to boil later, I went upstairs to see what my mom was up to. She was watching television. It was a gun smoke night, a Saturday night Western drama, one of her favorites. Tessie watched it regularly. She often set up a little table, a little folding table, and she set it up to do her curlers. These are little round plastic curlers that she would work into her hair. But tonight she was doing something different, another activity, at the same folding table while she watched the television show. She was removing her old nail polish. This involved brushing on polish remover, which softened up the hard polish so it could be slid right off your nail. And the polish remover was acetone. And it was the mystery odor that I had picked up on, under the tarps, in those steel barrels, in those trucks, in the valley. And like so many things in my life, like fox scat on logs, leaves curled up before rain, air bubbles in the mud. I tucked this away as yet another observation to draw upon later. And so begins the story of getting the lead out. Very, very interesting and really meaningful in that you had the presence of mind to record that smell and then connect and pair it to the smell of acetone and your mother's nail polish remover. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there were things like this that happened before. This, this is certainly one of the most significant, we will learn, this is one of the most significant acts of deliberate pollution in, in this state, in this part of the country. But I'm sure things like this happened before. There just wasn't a kid with a brilliant memory trapping <laughs> underneath the highway when it happened. And uh, thank goodness for us, you were there. Wow. One thing I, I just have to recall, uh, my one trapping story is when you took me up by the motel on the mountain and we picked up one of your traps and, it, you know, we put it across a, a stick and... I held one end, you held the other end, and we carried it down. And it, it was in the absolute dead of winter, freezing cold, and you had trapped a skunk. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. Look at that. It's a skunk, you know, with the white stripe down it and everything. Wow. That's a, Poor pretty, little skunk. Yeah, you know, pretty heavy, you know. And, of course, it got heavier as we, you know, walked on and got, you know, climbed down the mountain. But one other thing happened as we climbed down the mountain. It got a little bit warmer, and the ice the frozen uh, critter started to unfreeze. I was wondering about that. Oh, boy. <laughs> like you didn't smell? What a rich good. aroma that turned out <laughs> to be. <laughs> yeah, it smelled all right. It sure did, Tom. You know, it, uh, skunk scent, you know, it's, a, it's a caster. It's a gland that they excrete. They, they don't have to, but they, you know, like when they urinate, they don't have to, but they can. And uh, it's so strong that I learned from a lot of the uh, elder native folks, when they made a lure to draw an animal in, what they would do is they would season the lure with skunk gland because it would survive the cold and the rain and everything else. So it was a natural seasoning to the lures that they used to encourage an animal to come in. 
No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's something. Well, one thing I didn't do at the beginning and I'm going to do right now is introduce, of course, we have Dr. Chuck Stead here uh, who wrote the book, Get the Let Out. And if you look at the verbiage in uh, this particular episode, you'll see where you can actually buy the book and get a copy of it. Uh, and we, we really recommend that you do because it's, it's an outstanding uh, piece of work and you'll have all the facts and figures right in front of you then uh, as you hopefully begin your journey to try to make sure that uh, we take better care of Mother Earth. Uh, also with us today is my brother Tom. Hey, Joe. Hey. How hey, Tom. Good, uh, good to see you here. Good to, for you to be with us. Uh, now, Tom, I am the oldest boy in a family of 11. And Tom is the youngest boy or youngest person in the family of 11. And uh, so we represent either end of a, I think, about a 15-year span of time. Exactly. It's really two generations because I was listening to you guys before talk about stories of Uncle Mal, who I never met, and my father and your father. And I have no recollection because I'm so much younger. I'm 14 years younger than Joe. And that's actually not, doesn't seem like a lot of time, but 14 years of experience of life and trapping, yeah, doing yeah. everything else, while I was somewhere in the stratosphere. Yeah, um, it, yeah. it is two generations. It You're really is. It's right, like that, so. yeah. yeah. The first time I met you, of course, Aunt Peggy put you in my arms. Really? She was, <laughs> Aunt Peggy was a great one for hold the baby so that the baby can get uh, accustomed to you. And also, she needed help. <laughs> So hold the baby and I'm holding you and it was, you were calm and I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm holding you. And then I got very warm down in my arms. <laughs> Sorry. And I said, kind of like launching a ship. You know? Peg, it's, it's getting warm here. And she said, okay, hold on. And she goes off to get a change of diaper and she says, hold on. Oh. Well, that's what I was doing. And I looked at your, your funny little face and I said, I'm going to remember this. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. And 58 years later, I will apologize. It's <laughs> okay. Natural, natural thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, I think this is a great beginning uh, because I treasured the times that I came up and, and, you know, spent an overnight at your house or whatever because we would always go out into what I called Chuck's Woods. And Chuck's Woods was everything beyond the front door and the front doorstep and the front porch of your house. It was expansive. It was cut off on the right-hand side as you walked out of the house by this massive new highway that they had built through there, which is the New York State Thruway. But you seem to know ways and means and passageways and roads and, and alleyways that would get <laughs> us through, under, around that, you know, whenever you wanted. And then, of course, there was this wonderful mountain immediately to the left, upon which was settled the motel on the mountain at the time. But you would take me back into these areas, and it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. I lived in Paramus, New Jersey, a little post-Korean War neighborhood where, you, you know, all the houses were, you know, literally like, uh, oh, I'd say maybe 30, 35 feet apart and, and in a straight row, and they all looked exactly the same. They were all spec houses, you know, right after the Korean War. Cookie cutter. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have that. We didn't have trees and mountains and, and streams and things like that. We just, we had the block. And... Uh, you know, that was wonderful in its own way, but what you had was a kind of a paradise. It was this enchanted land. It was like a, it was mystical 
It's the only way I can describe it. And you had a sensitivity to that. You would say, well, you know, every once in a while, of course, listen, listen. And I, I never was quiet or listen. <laughs> I was always making noise. But you would do that. And I came to feel this very different, very beautiful, very enchanting place that I never really knew of before when I would come to visit you. And that's one of the reasons I love to come up here. Uh, and you always had something fascinating going on. But was it that way for you when you first went out with your dad? I don't know. I, I, um, I'm not saying I took it for granted, but it, it seemed to me that that was real life, and the unreal life was over in Catholic school. Yeah. And, and so it seemed to me, I started thinking of going to school as, well, that's the job that I have to do, like some of the adults have these jobs they have to do. But the real life is back here in the woods. And Walt told me uh, once, we used to go to church together and early in the morning, and he told me once after we'd been to Sacred Heart, he took me up the Torn Valley Road and got out by Flat Rock, and we went for a walk, and he said, this is my church. And, uh, and that you know, that's, that's a testimony to their relationship because he never would have gone to church if he hadn't been married to Tessie. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, right. that was the institutional part of his, you know, metaphysical understanding. But, but his real metaphysical understanding was the woods. And I think I was, I was lucky. You know, I think I just I happened to pick up on the vibe. Yeah. You know, and uh, so, yes, I guess it was, to answer your question. But also, in a, a lot of my thought was... Why are so many other things so strange? Huh? Like when I'd sure. come out of the woods and I'd go, you know, to different places. Like I was so intrigued with Paramus when we went there and I saw the houses that you got, you were just talking about. And I got out of the car. Tessie was, we're going to go inside. And I walked up and down the street staring at them. And she says, come on, we're going inside. We're going to go see Joey and Rosie. And I said, wait, 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 wait. And I stared because I couldn't understand. It was, it was an assault to my way of understanding things. Why yeah. do they look the same? Yeah. Is it Your is senses. it like is it a game or or you know how does this work? And in fact, when you know I mentioned Monopoly before when we were talking, um, when I saw the little houses in Monopoly that looked the same, I thought, "Oh, this is about suburbia. This is about, you know, that part of That's the world." It. Yeah. Cuz I it was just <laughs> so different. And the thing is, I know I know the skunk story you're talking about. It was across on the other side of the throughway and <laughs> and I remember that <laughs> now there's a memory so do i i'm gonna tell you another part of that too i remember we got it up on the stick and i was walking first and you were just thrilled to be there and i remember thinking and when it starts to thaw out he'll smell it because it'll be blowing back toward that's, him <laughs> that's absolutely right you bum and you know the thing about skunk odor is it doesn't bother me you know if you've been in the woods long enough it's just another scent yeah yeah. Somebody said it smells like coffee after a while. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It <laughs> Not does to me. It uh, does to me. <laughs> I guess because I haven't been around that many skunks, but it's uh, when I am near a skunk and it sprays. Oh, it's I, a pungent. It, it does the thing it needs to do. For me, it's kind of a nostalgia odor because I got sprayed so many times when I was a kid. It kind of, you know, where, where it brings you back nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's tactile. It's right. like, oh, I'm, I yep. get that. Now. Yep. Yeah. Well, if you if you own a dog and you live anywhere near the woods, which I do now, mm -hmm. you, you have a regular, a very intimate relationship with the smell of skunk because sooner or later he comes the in. dog gets <laughs> nailed, and uh, that's happened oh, three times for us. And so you break out the uh, tomato juice and uh, this yep. and that. And yep. you, Does that really work? 
No, it does actually. No, I don't think. <laughs> what we went, you end up with a dog that smells like tomato that's juice so, and that's skunk. the way it works. It smells, it smells like a little of both. Yeah, you're trying to just right. cut the sort of like skunk. a salad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. But, but this story, it's the scent of acetone. Yeah. In yes. this story, and and uh, tracking that down, and that will always in my mind be Ford Paint to smell yeah. acetone. Sure. It's a high-end industrial solvent. I mean, it's a pretty intense chemical. Oh, yeah. It'll take pretty much any paint or anything else off of any any substrate, any surface. Yeah, later in the series, Still I explain what Ford used the acetone for. Yeah. Because it was trapped inside the paint. Well, were they uh, cutting the paint with it, or were they... Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll explain okay. that later. But it, but they, they need... Because it's a sloppy job, paint shops yeah. inside of cars and all that sort of stuff, and the spray rooms and all, and the, the paint needed to be... Uh, that particularly the jets in the spray guns needed to be cleared out. So they used gallons and gallons of acetone. Yeah. I believe they still do that with spray guns. Oh, no, yeah. Just yeah. Acetone is used. When you go past a, a nail polish, you know, these new places where they mm-hmm. do your nails, uh, it's hard to breathe. Oh, and yeah. I, I always look at them and wonder, how, how do they all sit in there all it's tough. day doing that? And breathing that, it's maybe it's like me toxic. with the skunk scent, though. Maybe they get used to it after. Maybe a while. that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The difference is, I don't think the skunk smell will ever really hurt you in no. any way, but acetone will. It will. Yes. Time. Yeah, it's registered with the ATSDR, the federal agency on toxic materials, and uh, and it's registered as carcinogenic. It's highly dangerous. Wow. Well, yep. on that note, on that lovely happy note, guys, yes. we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this first episode. Hopefully. Uh, what you're catching on to right now is the fact that we've got a story to tell here uh, and a really serious one and one that, that we all need to pay attention to. And I think that's the purpose of this podcast is to get people more engaged, more involved, and more uh, sensitive to the issue of, of pollution, uh, whether it's industrial pollution or all other kinds of pollution. This is the only planet we're ever going to get. Okay, this is it for us. Maybe a thousand years from now, they'll be bouncing around to other planets. But for the next few thousand years, we're going to be on this little blue-green ball. And we really had better start taking good care of it because things are changing and not necessarily in the right direction. So with that, thank you, Dr. Chuck. And uh, Chuck, what are we going to talk about next week? Next week, we're going to do the second part, part two of the Trapper's Story which advances the trapping experiences and the early on witnessing of what was going on in the valley. Okay. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks so much. And please come back and listen to yet another chapter of Get the Let Out. <laughs>